This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, we're looking at verses 13 through 22. Page 46 in the church Bibles. The scene is the Midianite wilderness. Moses, in the course of keeping his flock of sheep, encounters a burning bush. And when he goes to investigate, uh, he discovers far more than he bargained for uh, because it's God himself, of course, who is present there. And uh, it speaks to Moses reveals himself to Moses, and we pick up with verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation. And we pray as we study them this morning, uh, Father, that your spirit would be present to help us, to accompany us, our thinking about it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your truth better 
and also, Father, to love you better and more because of this study reward this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to go up to people on the street and ask them to give you in one word, just one word, what the Bible is about, what do you suppose they would say? Now, this is obviously easily done, of course. You can just go out and do this. And I haven't done that, but just what would you imagine people would say, if you had to say the Bible is about one thing in one word, what would it be? I would imagine most people would say, well, the Bible's about God. And I mean just people on the street, professing Christian, not, you know, whatever, just their knowledge of the Bible. What is the Bible about the Word? I imagine most people probably would say, well, it's, it's a book about God. Is it? Well, obviously God's in it. Obviously God is the main character, the protagonist in the book that is the Bible and the story that the Bible describes. Uh, So God is important in the Bible, but is the Bible ultimately about God, about God himself? I would suggest to you no. Now, obviously, God plays a major role in it. But if I had to say in one word what the Bible is about... I would say redemption. Now, it involves God. Obviously, God is the one doing the redeeming. But the Bible is about God's redeeming a people for himself out of their sinful and fallen condition. From Genesis 3 on, the Bible is about God's grace, ultimately in sending a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing the way for him, And then his work, as we read about it in the Gospels, his death, his resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, the beginning of the church in Acts 2 and its expansion, and then the the letters of Paul and others that that, that tell about Jesus' ministry. They give the theological reasons, the meaning of the empty tomb, the meaning of the cross, so that we understand it right. And then, of course, the book of Revelation brings it to a conclusion by promising us Christ's ultimate victory the victory of his people in this world. What is the Bible about? Well, yes, it involves God, obviously, but it is about God's redemption of his people. Now, Genesis, or rather Exodus chapter 3, is a chapter packed with God. It's about God. It's all about God. But it's also, and ultimately, about redemption. In a sense, Exodus 3 is a microcosm of the entire Bible. It describes for us this God who acts to redeem his people. But as we've seen, we learn a lot about God because here God is coming to Moses. God has been silent for a very long time, humanly speaking. And now he reveals himself to Moses. As we've seen, uh, he reveals his holiness to Moses earlier in the chapter. Moses, take off your sandals. The ground you were standing on is holy ground because God himself is present there. It reveals to us his knowledge in verses 7 through 9, that though he may have been silent, God was not unaware of what was happening in Egypt, what was happening to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it also reveals to us 
uh, his presence. As Moses says, who am I to go and do this? God's answer to Moses when he's called him to go and lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses says, who am I to do something like this? And the Lord says, but Moses, I'll be with you. So he's already revealed to us that he's a God who is holy. He is a God who has knowledge, uh, ultimately all knowledge. He is a God who is present with his people. But he continues. We continue to learn more about God in this uh, in the second half of this chapter. And so that's what we want to look at here is three things about himself that God reveals, further reveals to Moses. And as it's recorded here in Scripture to us as well. The first thing that he mentions uh, in revealing himself to Moses is his name. Now, it's interesting it should have gone this far. One of the first things we want to know about people is, what's your name? We know what their name is. We want to know what to call them. And interestingly, rightly or wrongly, their name may have certain associations based on other people we know with that name. Until we establish that name with that person, other associations may come to bear, rightly or wrongly. The name tells us something about them. Of course, in Bible times, as you know, the name was often given because of its meaning. Today, we may give a name for any number of reasons, including its meaning. But back then, that that tended to uh, be a, a higher emphasis, the meaning of a name. And so, obviously, it's, it's absolutely critical when we come to talking about the name of God. Well, we see this in verses 14 and 15, beginning in 13. Moses has an interesting question. Well, if I come to the people and they say to me, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? What's interesting is why Moses would even wonder that, why that would be a question. Why does he think the Israelites would ask, what is his name? Have they forgotten who this God was who made these promises? Well, probably not entirely. It may have just been asking, well, what God is it who, who, who has sent you? Tell us about him. Some have even suggested the name was secret. and They were asking Moses to verify he'd actually gotten the right revelation from the right God by giving the name. That may be a little bit far-fetched, but it is interesting that Moses had, had concerns that the people would ask, what's the name of this God who has, uh, who has told you to speak to us for him? What do I tell them? Well, for whatever reason Moses asked that question, we are indebted to him. Because it gives us, it gives the Lord the opportunity to tell us his name. Not his title, but his name. And so we see in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, what, what are we to make of that? That's a strange name. And the, the word that the Lord uses is related to the Hebrew verb to be, the word for being. And so God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Now, you may know the Hebrew way of writing that was four letters, uh, so-called tetragrammaton. And it was the name that, that Moses, that the Lord gave to Moses. And unfortunately for us, 
uh, a long time ago, the Jews stopped saying that name so that we don't absolutely know for certain how it was pronounced. Uh, they, would, they, they would say something different to avoid that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But almost certainly the name was pronounced something like Yahweh or Yahweh. That's God's name. It's like my name is Alan. That's his name. It's not his title. It's his name. Well, what does it mean? Why, why would God give a name like that? It's his name. What does that mean? What does that tell us about God? Well, first of all, as I said, it has to do with being. Some have suggested that it's, it, it, it describes to us or, or puts before us God's self-existence. That God exists in and of himself. He has absolute existence. You, you and I don't. We exist at the good pleasure of God. He brought us into being. We continue to exist because he wills that we exist. But God himself had no beginning. He's self-existent. His his existence is not derived from anyone else because there's no one higher than he himself to derive being from. It implies also he is eternal. He is without beginning. He is without end. He, he He is. He just is. He's being. Absolute being. He's unchanging. He is what he is. He says, I am who I am, which implies I'm not going to be something else or something different or change over time. What I am is that which I am. And all of these things uh, are possible implications of this mysterious name that the Lord reveals to Moses. He reveals that that is his, his covenant name. Look at uh, verse 15. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, and again, that same name, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So he reveals his name, but he is, he's the same God. He's the God of their fathers. He's the God who made these covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you've got to remember, for Israel, living in modern times in Egypt... Abraham and Isaac and Jacob seemed like a very, very long time ago, centuries before. But the Lord says, the God who revealed himself to them, who made those covenant, covenants with them, I am that same God. Yahweh is my name. It's his name forever. Look at verse 15 again. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. Remember, we read in Hosea, where they say, he says, the Lord is his name. It is his memorial name. Why don't we use it? You have to admit, for most Christians today, the name Yahweh sounds a bit strange. Or to some, maybe it sounds very academic. You know, this is, this is uh, the kind of thing you would hear in seminary or talk about. You know, there. But Christians don't typically refer to the Lord as Yahweh. And the reason is because, as I said, the Jews, out of respect for the name, eventually stopped saying the name. When they came to those four letters, which you'd render in English something like YHWH, they would say a different word. They would say Adonai. It's kind of interesting, Mike, you may have experienced this. If we had to read the passage, in Hebrew, in a Hebrew class, some students would say Yahweh. Others would adopt the Jewish practice and say Adonai. 
They would read it differently than what's there. Uh, but they would say Adonai, which was something like Lord, Master, instead, out of reverence. They didn't want to take the name in vain. You know, if you didn't say it at all, and the motive was good, if you didn't say it at all, then you couldn't misuse it. You couldn't use it improperly. You couldn't offend God by misusing his name. So they didn't say it at all. They would say Adonai, Lord or Master. Later, um, people were trying to figure out how you say the name, and they mistakenly took the vowels for Adonai and the consonants for Yahweh and came up with Jehovah, which is actually a name, which is probably a mistaken pronunciation. It's kind of coming to use. We have it in our hymns. Uh, but that is probably a word that never existed in biblical times. We use it. We think of it as a name for God. It's become customary in that way. But the word is more likely to have been pronounced Yahweh. That's okay to say Jehovah. We have hymns that say, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. The Lord knows who we're talking about. Uh, we just need to recognize that, that that's sort of a hybrid of the vowels from one word and the consonants from another. Well... That's even made its way into most of our English translations. You will notice that as soon as God gives his name to Moses, say to them, I am has sent me to you. Say to the people of Israel, the Lord in small capital letters. Now, in our English Bibles, when you see the small capital letters, it indicates it's translating his name, Yahweh. But our English Bibles follow the Jewish practice instead of saying the name of using the word Lord, and that small caps to distinguish it from a regular set word Lord that indicates Adonai, which means master. So even our English Bibles uh, pick up on that. The 1901 American Standard used Jehovah whenever that word occurred. Interestingly, uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation uses the word Jehovah, which again is a mistaken hybrid of a word. I remember Sinclair Ferguson, uh, Scottish pastor, seminary professor at Westminster, and uh, author, uh, talking about a discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses. And, um, you know, they point out the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. Well, he pointed out the word Jehovah does not actually occur in the Bible either. <laughs> so, uh, and while Trinity uh, does not occur as a word, uh, certainly the persons of the Trinity are, are there. But that's the name of God. God reveals his personal name to Moses, and it's to be used. It was to be used. It wasn't to be avoided out of some uh, exaggerated reverence for the name, or even superstitious reverence for the name, but it was the name that he revealed. And you may prefer to continue to call him the Lord, and that's okay. Uh, But just recognize that he reveals his name as Yahweh, and if you hear that name, just understand the significance of it. Uh, But typically it's translated as I am, which is precisely why in John 8, the Jews were ready to stone Jesus for blasphemy when he said before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what he was claiming. The Jehovah's Witnesses are absolutely wrong when they say Jesus never claimed to be deity to be one with the Father, because he absolutely did. They knew, the Jews understood what Jesus was saying, taking the name of God, that holy, unpronounceable name, and applying it to himself. It would have been blasphemy, except Jesus happened to be Yahweh, 
in the flesh. So he reveals his name. He goes on then with Moses to reveal his promise. Look at verses 16 through 17. Promise of redemption. He says to Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, by the way, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I observe you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise. First of all, the emphasis is this is from the Lord. This is not Moses. This is a promise made from the Lord, the one who's just revealed his personal name to Moses, the one, the name that he is to go and tell the Israelites that Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come and has revealed himself to me. And he says, I know what's going on with you in Egypt. And then he promises deliverance. Verse 17, I will bring you up. I promise I will bring you up out of this affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So on the one hand, you have the promise of deliverance. You could say a negative to, to relieve you of this suffering, this misery that you're experiencing. On the other hand, he says, I promise to bring you into this land of the, uh, the Canaanites and so forth, and a land flowing with milk and honey, which, of course, is, is a beautiful picture of a, of a good land, a fruitful land, a fertile land, a pleasant land, good place to be. Far different from, uh, from, from Egypt. So there's both the promise of relieving them of their suffering, but also the promise of bringing them into a place of great uh, abundance, of great bounty, of great enjoyment. And so God makes this promise on the basis of his name, on the basis of himself, that he's going to do this. By the way, that was, um, that was not anything new uh, way back in Genesis 15, verse 14, as we've referred to before, God had told all this to Abraham. Uh, verse 13, this is Genesis 15:13. The Lord said to Abram, by the way, the name Lord there is Yahweh, the small caps version of it. The Bible uses it. Moses used it even before he describes how God revealed it to him. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God's, he's revealing what he's going to do in the future, but he's already long before that revealed what he was going to do. Even back as far as Abraham told them what would happen. There's no, no surprise here, nothing Unusual here. So his name, God reveals his name. God reveals this promise that Moses is to pass along to the people that the Lord, that Yahweh has come. He's met with Moses and he's told Moses to tell them what he's going to do. But you don't just waltz into Pharaoh's court and say, Pharaoh, we need to uh, we need to go out and uh, leave Egypt for a while. Got some uh, religious business to take care of. And Pharaoh says, oh, just go ahead. Anything you need. OK, well, y'all. You'll have a great time. Lord bless you and all that. Doesn't happen. Notice what the Lord says in verse 18. They will listen to your voice. You and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And by the way, again, that name, the name Yahweh keeps is, is repeated here, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Why not? Were they being disingenuous? Were they being deceitful when they said, well, we just need to go and worship three days, go three days journey in the wilderness to worship? What that does is it moves the whole encounter beyond just asking to go away into making it essentially a religious showdown, a contest between the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the gods of Egypt. Actually, sort of embodied in Pharaoh himself, who rather humbly took himself to be deity and insisted on the worship of all Egypt. You see, it would be an affront not just to Pharaoh's political power, but to his claim to be divine if he bows to Yahweh in allowing the people to go, in acquiescing and giving over to, to Moses' request to go and worship the Lord in the wilderness rather than giving obeisance to, to Pharaoh himself. Yes, it was a matter of liberty. Yes, it was a matter of politics. But above all, this was a matter of religion. God is setting the stage for a showdown between himself and the gods of Egypt. Of course, you know the rest of the story. Who wins the showdown? Well, the Lord. But here in advance, he tells them, I know Pharaoh will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Whose mighty hand? Well, the Lord says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he'll let you go. So they make their request to Pharaoh, and the Lord says that Pharaoh is going to resist that. He's not going to let that happen unless he's absolutely forced to do it. And so I'll stretch out my hand and apply all necessary force to make it happen. And not only that, but look at verses 21 and 22. I will give this people, the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. They were empty. After 400 years of slavery, Israel was absolutely impoverished. They had nothing. They were slaves. They were not paid for their labor. But God's not going to leave it that way. You will not go empty. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor, any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Just as the Egyptians had plundered Israel for 400 years. Certainly their possessions, but also their lives, their energies, their labors for centuries. Before Israel left, they would plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians would more than happily give them anything just to get them out of Egypt before Egypt itself was destroyed. And, of course, that promise later is fulfilled. Israel went out, yes, but they went out greatly enriched by the Egyptians, which... uh, provided them with what they needed to not only clothe their sons and daughters, but later for things such as the tabernacle and so forth, all of that. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So we come to the end of chapter 3, a chapter that uh, is, is full of God. 
It's about God. God revealing himself, these various attributes and characteristics, even his own personal name. But it's about more than just God himself. This isn't just A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God, a final book. But it's a book about, or a chapter about redemption. Because God promises not just who he is, but who he is for Israel in knowing their misery and his promise to bring them out, to provide for them, bring them into a good land. The amazing thing is, we read this and we think, oh, this happened so long ago and so far away, and that's true. But remember, this is the God whose name is I am who I am. This is the same God with which you and I have to do today. This magnificent being Moses encountered there in the wilderness is our God today. His name is the same. His promises are the same. And he has sent us an even greater deliverer than Moses to deliver us from an even greater enemy and oppressor than Egypt. He sent us the Lord Jesus Christ, who with his mighty hand, his death and his resurrection, would bring us out of both our misery and sin, yes, and our guilt before God, yes, but would bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey even to heaven itself, even ultimately to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You see, this is God's name for us, the Lord, our covenant God. This is his promise to us, his power put into effect for our benefit, our blessing. You see, he revealed his personal name because he wants us to know him personally. He calls us to know him personally in Jesus. He calls us to trust in his promises in Jesus. He calls us to receive and benefit from his saving work, the saving work of his power for us in Jesus. Do you know this God, the God of the burning bush? Are you on a first name basis with him? You can be in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this chapter, an amazing chapter, because you are an amazing God. And Father, we pray that just as you revealed yourself to Moses, that by your spirit you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know you, yes, as the creator, yes, as the sovereign God, but also as the God we know on a first name basis, Yahweh, the Lord, Uh, the God we know as children know their father, as you've adopted us into your family in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus went to Satan, who would not give us up without a fight, and won the victory through his own death for us and through his resurrection. Father, I pray for myself, pray that each one of us would be alive in Jesus to know you and to know the blessings of your salvation, the forgiveness of sin, yes, but the joy of knowing you, the joy of being with you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.